another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast this is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle the people that make it and occasionally ourselves i am camille foster i'm joined by michael moynihan matt welch is somewhere i think he is on the west coast someplace he's in uh fomenting a coup in russia (laughs) (laughs) don't don't speak russian but he's in there trying to make you're not supposed to tell um but we did get a ringer (laughs) um this week uh and this is not the first time that you mr coleman hughes have sat no, in for Matt Welch, but we are happy to have you do it. Yeah. Um, and delighted to it's see an urgent, you and talk with you urgent. per usual. I need to, I need to inter- intervene here, Camille. Okay. I need people to understand this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we would have gladly had Coleman fill in because he's a brilliant young lad. Um, mm. One of our favorites. Um, I think he was kind of a Camille protege, but he's overtaking you. So I don't know what to call So anyway, um, an ex-protege. Um, but, um, but Coleman, uh, this is a, there's a reason for this. Um, and it's not just the brilliance. It's this is an intervention, mm. um, and this is it, you, you've probably seen this in the in the title, Michael. Of the episode. Michael, I can stop whenever I want. That's okay. All right, I can quit I mean, whenever Karen I want. Carpenter said that. Yeah, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's no. I understand what you think. So um, you're the mama cass of this podcast. You are going to die very soon of five G radio waves. Um, because Coleman Hughes. Uh, I mean, again, there's a lot to talk about because literally uh, about an hour ago, we found out that there is a coup. Not that it was suspected this might not be the case, but it is true that. Uh, 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 Prigozhin and the Wagner Group are, are actively um, fighting <laughs> the Russian military right now. Crazy. Crazy. So before we get to that, though, Coleman, you have a problem. And you <laughs> emailed me about it. And you said you're being sucked in to this cult. Is it Nixon? No, it's not Nixon. Because at least then you get a hand job. Because that's a sex. <laughs> this is an, a warbly voiced cult. And you are, my friend, Coleman Hughes, somehow yeah. falling down the rabbit hole yeah. of RFK Jr. apologism. What happened? I like him. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's either that he's, he's compelling and mistreated or budding symptoms of my own mental illness. Okay, those might be two possibilities. <laughs> I also think there's more. There's more that yeah. could be going on there. And you heard him and uh, speak one time. You're like, I could listen to that voice forever. <laughs> yeah. That's what I want to hear. Um, but what is it that compels you to put all of your credibility on the line and blow up a very promising career <laughs> by supporting someone with a deep, deep mental illness like uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Well, you know what? Mostly, I don't really care about his fringe beliefs that I disagree with about Wi-Fi and and all the rest. They're just called his beliefs, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) They're just his beliefs. They're not even... All of his beliefs are are fringe (laughs) beliefs. Okay. Um, Not all wrong, but but mostly. And I, I, I think I agree with his core diagnosis about the corruption and uh unholy alliance between pharmaceutical companies and the uh medical agencies that are supposed to police them but are to a large degree financially incentivized not to and i feel um that this is true and important and the public suffered from it uh to a disturbing degree during covid and they're 
hasn't been much honesty or accountability about it. And I think, you know, in the same way that a, a person like Trump was so easy for mainstream media to dismiss by focusing on, you know, the 5% of his most outlandish statements, uh, RFK is similar in that you can, you know, it's, it's really easy f- to fixate on, uh, you know, the fringe on the Wi-Fi and, um, and, and all the other stuff without taking a real sincere look at what it is, uh, that, that, re- that makes people resonate with him. Mm-hmm. But you understand Coleman that the career that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has has been based on his ideas about vaccines and autism. That's why he's not one of these kind of also ran Kennedys that you find face down in a ditch in, um, you know, Chappaquiddick or something. He resonated because of those ideas. So they're not just like the 5%. They're like his mainstream ideas, his ideas, like what he thinks you should be talking about all the time are ideas that, you know, I know people roll their eyes now and say they're widely discredited, but they kind of are, right? I mean, if you, if you, particularly on the, on the vaccine and autism stuff, that's a very big conspiracy of people, independent researchers, et cetera, not just big pharma, but people who say this stuff is, is totally wrong. I mean, do you, considering he made his career as a kind of public advocate on that issue, does it not um, make you second guess some of his other ideas no. like the fact that the water is making us transgender and <laughs> is frying your balls. Uh, so first of all, I don't, uh, it, it's, I think it's pretty clear now that those, uh, thimerosal containing vaccines don't cause autism. It's been pretty clear for a while, but it wasn't clear at the time. And, and so, and, and by the way, I don't think he claims that anymore. He certainly, he certainly doesn't, uh, he certainly didn't in his, in his Rogan interview, he, he, he says, um, he was careful to say, I, I'm, I'm not sure whether, you know, it, it causes it, but it should be studied more, which again, I'm running for president. I, I, maybe, um, yeah. yeah, maybe he secretly believes it, but, um, I mean, it hasn't been so secret though, has it? No, <laughs> I mean, it no. Would be, it would be just, he's kind of changing his views, um, uh, recently. And, you know, as you pointed out in your email that his book about Anthony Fauci, um, a good, you know, percentage of that book is about AIDS and, yeah, and AZT, I, which Fauci was, was intimately Robert Gallo uh-huh. and Fauci and all these people, um, were involved with. Yeah. But, um, well, the section I, that about even, AIDS is like a fringe thing, isn't it? That's, I think even more fringe because he's basically just, it's like a hundred straight footnotes from one book which is mm-hmm. um, Bruce Nussbaum's book, Good Intentions, which I, I haven't read and have no opinion and on. And Celia but, Farber's book. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, whenever you see someone that writes 200 pages quoting from only two books, it's like, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's a huge red flag. Um, so, yeah. So, but, but with regard to the autism stuff, uh, I know I, I don't, it, it doesn't, look, the fact that I think that he's wrong doesn't make me dismiss him and think that he should, you know, uh, dismiss him as a serious, um, as a serious person, especially because I don't think you had to be crazy to be concerned that, uh, thimerosal containing vaccines were, uh, were, um, a problem at the time, right? Like hindsight, we, we, the reason it was looked into so much is because, you know, uh, nobody knew, 
in the 90s, including the FDA and the CDC, whether methyl mercury was um, as bad as, sorry, whether ethyl mercury was as bad as methyl mercury. And the health authorities were saying that, you know, pregnant woman probably shouldn't have this. And the FDA, um, which again, in hindsight was a very alarmist, bad decision, put, put the same guidelines for ethyl mercury that they had for methyl mercury without knowing anything about it. And so they asked the CDC to study it. And the CDC con convened this Simpsonwood conference. And this is where his conspiracy, conspiracy starts, right? They convened this Simpsonwood conference in 2000. And I, I looked up the transcript and I read the whole thing. And basically, you know, they, the whole thing is about whether thimerosal uh, causes neurological defects. Because the, a scientist did a pretty careful study which found a safety signal for thimerosal for, and it's actually, strangely enough, it wasn't autism that he found it for. It was, uh, it was, it was like AD, ADD and uh, verbal tics and speech delays. And he specifically looked into autism at this conference and did not find a, a statistically significant um, um, causation. But of course, in the 90s, autism was, was, was uh, exploding and, and nobody really knew why. And so maybe that's why people seized onto it. But that's actually not what he found. But anyway... The, this whole conference, it's like there's like 60 people in the room and they just spend two days really carefully looking at this guy's study, who is a CDC analyst. And 99% um, of it is they're just talking about like P values and like, like, you know, just wonky stuff. Um, and then there's basically two points that are interesting. One is where um, the scientist gets up and says, look, this is a really concerning signal. It's, it's not yet, we don't yet know if it's causal, but I can tell you my grandson was born today and I don't want him to have a thimerosal vaccine, mm. right? So that's what a top scientist was saying. A CDC on ASIP actually um, at that moment. And then at the very end of the meeting, this guy from the World Health Organization, and this is where RFK sort of got the more conspiratorial element from, He's, he gets up and says, um, I am, I'm concerned. I think this study should not have been done. Right. And he basically suggests that the study, because it found a safety signal for these neurological diseases should have been like preemptively suppressed because mm -hmm. once it's aired in this meeting, he mentions freedom of information Act. He's like, this meeting is now going to be available because of FOIA. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm worried that the information will lead to, and he kind of speaks in this very vague kind of way. And, and that's really the only, so basically RFK seized upon that as evidence that the whole meeting was a ploy by all these scientists to suppress the data, which it wasn't. Um, it was really just the one guy from the world health organization who was, who was in fairness, suggesting that. And so he wrote this, you know, Rolling Stone article um, that was, it, it was, um, I mean, all, all the corrections made to it actually were not actually germane to its, to its error. Its deeper error was the attribution of bad motives to people in the same way. And I, I, I know I sent this to you in the email, email Moynihan, but in the same way that Christopher Hitchens assumed without evidence that, that. Bill Clinton bombed the El Shifa factory because he was trying to, um, 
you know, and distract the public. Yeah. Distract the public from the Lewinsky scandal. And then, Mm -hmm. so yeah, he does have a conspiratorial mind, but like, I, I don't, I, first of all, I do think the incentives for, um, and there have been several examples where vaccines are dangerous and are recalled. And it's like, it's found that the, 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 um, the people approving them had conflicts of interest and, and so forth. I think that as an underlying dynamic is true and important. Um, and, and, uh, and so I don't really blame someone in, in the year 2000 for having that strong concern, right? Like someone, a top scientist in the room was saying, I don't want to give this to my grandson. How are you going to say everyone who was concerned about that at the time was some kind of irrational anti-vaxxer, right? Well, I mean, isn't the thing at that point, though, is that um, to have concern about something and then to directly tie it to something like a rise in autism um, is a rather large leap, right? And, you know, the thing about uh, Kennedy is that it's just, you know, these people always believe the whole passel of crazy ideas. It's not just one. And if it was just one, if it was like, you know what, I've looked into this uh, and number one, that would be something. Second thing, by the way, is worth, worth pointing out. He writes this for Rolling Stone. What are his qualifications to be writing about vaccines? Absolutely nothing. And he's a Kennedy. I mean, his, it's not even that he's a journalist. He's a Kennedy. That is it. And he's taking all these people uh, along in this journey about vaccines. So rather than getting into that, I mean, I think it's pretty well proven that his ideas about vaccines and autism um, have been debunked. I mean, if they haven't been debunked, there's no such thing as debunking because these are people, I mean, from all across the spectrum um, that are scientists, that are researchers, et cetera. I do get the thing about, um, you know, vested interests and things being approved. Uh, problem oftentimes um, with the FDA is different from vaccines is that they're too slow to approve things. I mean, it's often as a diabetic, the stuff that I'm looking for is usually approved in Europe prior to it being approved in uh, uh, the United States, you know, there's not a lot of incentive to give people bad medicine, Mm -hmm. right? To rush it through. I mean, you start killing people. What was it? Vioxx? Do you remember that? That, I mean, these things have enormous uh, effects on not only people, your, your, your customer base, et cetera, patients, but on their bottom line. I mean, if you're a company that's just trying to get this stuff through to get it out on the market and it's having adverse effects on people, you're going to face lawsuits. You're going to face financial ruin pretty quickly. Well, the, the phar- generally pharmaceutical companies, I mean, in the case of vaccines, they, they, they can't be held liable. Vaccines, vaccines, yeah, are, vaccines are, are different. different. Yeah. So, for example, I mean, and it, with the, this, and, and I think this is relevant to, to be less judgmental in, in retrospect about like people that are worried about this stuff at the time there was also the the rota shield scandal the road the rotavirus vaccine which was rolled out in 98 and then recalled after it was the cdc found it was calling causing intussusception in infants and then congress looked into it in 2000 and found that seven of the 13 people on the fda and cdc panels who voted uh, the panel voted unanimously to approve seven of those 13 people had direct financial conflicts of interest with pharma companies that were concurrently developing rotavirus vaccines. And that has since been, is that not true? I mean, I think since then there has been some, some measures taken to oh, present since- that, 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 by the way, mm-hmm. is a problem. Um, it doesn't mean that Robert Kennedy is somebody that you should vote for for president. 
these types of problems do exist. They do. They exist in every universe, whether it's, you know, uh, ethanol subsidies, these politicians getting money from the corn lobby, et cetera. That is a problem. Of that, that's definitely a problem, too. But I, I, I do feel it. It bothers me more when when, you know, frankly, because we just came out of a pandemic where I felt that the CDC, NIH and the FDA were not neutral referees of information and any skepticism of um, their public statements was met with making you a non-person. I think that is yes. a large part of the reason why I'm, I'm more forgiving than I otherwise would be of, of someone like RFK because he is, is speaking to a kind of, I think, a gaslit population of people who were told to trust the science. And, um, and I, don't, I really don't think there's been a careful reckoning of just how many mm -hmm. of how uh, irrationally uh, the vaccines were, were pushed upon people and coerced um, upon people. You know. I mean, pushed is one thing. Coercion is a different thing. I mean, I think that you're right about all of this. We talked about it in the last episode is that there has to be some accountability and people should expect these kind of second order effects and kind of root cause theory. Like, why are people acting this way? Why is he polling at 30 percent or 20 percent? Um, it's pretty obvious why. And I think that's right. I mean, for instance, I'll give you an example of this. I just read an article about RFK um, and I think it was actually in Slate. Uh, about how everyone in the Kennedy family is embarrassed by him or something. Of course, nobody's on the record. This is just a presumption. But uh, one of the things says, you know, he has a bunch of kooky views. And the first thing that is listed as a kooky view, and this is last week, um, I think it was last week, uh, was that he believes that the coronavirus escaped from a, a, a lab in Wuhan that yeah. was funded partially with American money. Yeah. That's not a cookie belief. That is probably the truth. Mm -hmm. And when you start conflating these things and saying, look at all these crazy beliefs in those of us who have been reading about this stuff or caring, I mean, John Stewart, for Christ's sake, these aren't fringe people. And you start seeing that in that kind of passel of crazy beliefs. Then you start navigating yourself towards him. But when you get there, you do find that he's one of these people who believes every single one of the crazy beliefs. I mean, that transgenderism is caused by something that is seeped into the water is essentially, you know, John Birch society and fluoride. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's <laughs> has he said that? Has he said that in people as well? Uh, oh, the frogs one. Cause uh, I, I think all he, I heard, he all I heard him was just cite the study about frogs uh, without linking it to people. I think there was, it was but, more but than insinuated has, that, that it had some relationship to what's happening in, in so I don't think he was talking about transgender frogs. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> you can look it up. I mean, I don't, I don't remember thinking he was insinuating anything about humans, but I could be wrong. Yeah. That was certainly what but I what took away What is the purpose of it? bringing something like that up? What is the I don't purpose? know. It came up, you know, Rogan, they like to talk about weird animals. <laughs> yeah, He's always I mean, talking I mean, about like, Oh, animals doing weird animals, eating each other. And I, I didn't yeah, catch the insinuation. Is, I'm not saying it wasn't there. I yeah. personally didn't catch it. I mean, the 5G and the Wi-Fi stuff. That I mean, this is was, yeah, that was definitely about humans. But I, I wonder. That's, and that's that's insane. I, I mean, there's no evidence of that. But I wonder about like we could we could certainly try to tick through the various things that were said. I mean, it's clear, and I think Coleman, you'd agree that his performance on Rogan involved him opening a number of doors to somewhat suspect perspectives on controversial topics. Sure. I think you're correct that we 
collectively, um, the media broadly, Americans broadly, perhaps spend too little time thinking about what actually makes someone like this appeal to the public on the merits. Um, certainly, there are lots of people who have conspiratorial mo- minds, like my mom, for example, who <laughs> believe all manner of conspiracies about vaccines and everything else. And as a result, that would be her guy. Um, but it is also the case, I think you're correct, that the many missteps over the course of the last couple of years related to public health have engendered a great deal of distrust in the public. And as a result, someone like Mr. Kennedy can thrive in uh, in an election season. But it's also the case that to the extent that these are legitimate concerns, he might be the worst possible advocate to actually get these concerns, the sort of broader hearing that you might want. If we actually want to have this reckoning, like he might be precisely the sort of person to make that harder to do because the people who actually need to be persuaded that this reckoning ought to happen are the ones who were more inclined to say, yeah, yeah, you know, believe the science, trust the science, trust the science. Like you actually have to advocate on behalf of your perspective in a way that's going to appeal to the people who disagree. And it, it, it reminds me of the rather intense response to everyone who's been insisting, you know, maybe you should have a debate. (laughs) Maybe there should be a debate Mm -hmm. between Mr. Kennedy and some prominent person who speaks on behalf of the say scientific establishment. Um, Maybe there ought to be a debate about this. I really don't understand the, the um, insistence on not debating someone like him. So, I mean, I've been reading his 900 page book about Fauci and there are just a lot of straight up errors that anyone could mm-hmm. um, anyone could expose in real time, and the fact that there are there are professional like public health people mm-hmm. right who claim that the most important thing is for them to communicate science to people and and but they don't think it's worth their time to combat who the person they feel is the most consequential misinformation spreader. Right. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, like, it's like and you're it, saying it, I'm, I'm, my whole life is about fighting fires and now this is oh. the biggest fire ever, but it's actually not worth my time to put out. I mean, you can get away with that when someone is polling at 0.01%, when somebody's polling at 20% in the democratic primary that doesn't exist. That is something, if you are a doctor who's concerned about this stuff, you should be willing to go and debate that. I am very skeptical about debating conspiracy theories. It's a very hard thing to do because they're quite slippery and can, you know, always come up with another study that you can't in real time sure. debunk a study. It's very hard to do. Camille debated a woman at, um, at the uh, Village Underground, the Comedy Cellar, um, about race. And she kept on quoting this study that I never heard. It was like, it was the magic study that everything mm-hmm. you said, well, this, this study. And it was like, well, you can't <laughs> debate somebody on that. It it's just like, dumb. they just walk that is across true. the, and it's really annoying. But that said, I However, do agree with you that you, in, you should. In RFK's case, it's all in the written record. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure he has a single belief related to pharma or public health at the very least that is not footnoted whether the footnote is right or wrong, right? Yeah, that, that is not footnoted. Like you could, e- yeah. if you put in the time, you could easily debate him. What what really is true is, I think you can debate conspiracy theorists. Michael Shermer has spent many many years debunking conspiracy theories very effectively. 
what you can't. And he wrote debate. very interesting on Twitter about how hard it is. Too. Yeah, yeah. He, he yeah. has a unique skill set. Hard but worthy. Yeah. Hard but worthy. Yeah, absolutely worthy. But there's, yeah. A, there's and, um, yeah. Go ahead, Colin. Sorry, uh, I was going to say what you really can't debate is someone that doesn't play by the rules of evidence and logic. That's really. The but I think you can. But view. I think you could probably debate them too. I mean, the the reality is that you are pointing that out regularly, and there are there are people who have the experience, the particular rhetorical skill set to be able to walk into almost any environment to have kind of a focused attack to to be able to define the rules of the particular engagement and to remind the audience this is what we're supposed to be doing you you notice the antics of my opponent right it is entirely possible perhaps even likely that their diehard supporters won't change their minds at the end of the debate, no matter what happens. It's entirely likely that this person will not change their perspective, no matter what happens. But ultimately, the reason to have the debate isn't because you can change Mr. Kennedy's mind. Um, it is because you understand that there is a kind of virality to to these ideas being out there unchallenged. Um, and there is even, I think, a potential defect in making it seem as though you're afraid to confront these ideas in public. Uh, and, and you imagine that you can just kind of shut them down somehow, close off uh, the, the, the airwaves and say, we quote unquote, we will not quote unquote platform you. Um, like that doesn't work. And the notion that just showing up on stage next to these people in some context or that addressing publicly the things that they say is somehow giving them strength um, I think it all depends on the context, uh, but I, I definitely don't think in general. It presumes a lot right. about yourself, by the way, when you say that I'm legitimizing someone, I have the power to legitimize someone if I go up on stage next to them. It's like, yeah. you know, they've been doing a very good job on their own, by the way, and you're not the arbiter of, of who is uh, legitimate mm-hmm. or not. I mean, one of the things that, that frustrates me about um, RFK is to your point, Coleman, which I think is the kind of overarching point that you're making, which is the science, the science is spoken. Um, he's guilty of the same thing mm-hmm. and, uh, quite aggressively. So too, you know, back, um, about a decade ago, maybe a little less, um, Matt Welch wrote about this in mm-hmm. his piece for a reason that, you know, he said the, the science is settled on global warming mm-hmm. and people who deny it should be prosecuted. <laughs> I mean, that's one step further, right? Yeah. That's an authoritarian mindset. And I, I haven't you know, heard him walk any of be, this stuff back. By the way, I, I well, cause nobody questions him. About yeah. it. Nobody <laughs> asks about it. And, and, and he's getting a lot of, uh, airplay, which is another reason that people like, um, you know, this Hotez, Peter Hotez, whatever his name is, a scientist should debate him because he's not going away. He's only gaining strength. And it is a feeling. If you take all of the things that he believes individually, they all add up to somebody who has a type of brain hmm. that is kind of inclined towards a conspiratorial worldview, that there's something hidden in the shadows. I mean, it's one thing to think your father, your your uncle was killed by the CIA, which is completely insane and wrong. But a lot of people think that. There's a lot of people that are wrong about that, right? But to think that your father was also killed by the CIA and not Sirhan Sirhan, the Palestinian who um, confessed to it and said, I did this because of um, Bobby Kennedy's support for Israel. And he tells you that himself, you go and visit him much to the anger of your family and you say he's innocent. Whereas in the person you're talking to is like, actually, no, I'm not. <laughs> that shows that there's someone very, very desperate to put the world into this machine that kind of comes out the other end, making a whole lot of sense because there's a couple of key players. You know, it's the CIA. It's, it's a version of the deep state, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, there's a lot of stuff like that that is true. I mean, Eli Lake has been talking about this. Um, recently, and I've been talking to him about he's doing a podcast on the Church Commission 
And that showed that there was some pretty crazy stuff that the quote unquote deep state and that the CIA was doing. And Frank Church exposed that, a progressive um, uh, senator that, uh, you know, changed the way we think about the CIA to this day. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the reason that Oliver Stone and his brain exists the way it does is, is essentially because of the Church Commission. But this, I mean, everything, the AIDS thing, I'll give you an example. This is why this is a person who cannot be trusted. Um, and I think I mentioned this in an email to you, but uh, there's a woman named Christine Maggiore, who was a activist who did not believe that HIV caused AIDS. Um, what I think is very unfairly called HIV or, or AIDS denialism. I don't like that phrase. I tend to not like denialism in any other context other than Holocaust denialism <laughs> because it's supposed to be redolent of Holocaust denialism. It's supposed to put you in the kind of idea mm-hmm. that this person is also a Nazi, right? Denialism is a, is a thing. So she's accused of that, right? But she was also HIV positive. And she had a daughter uh, named Eliza Jane who is also HIV positive. And she refused to treat her daughter with any of these drug cocktails because she said HIV is essentially a harmless virus. And the same thing is true with me as a carrier of this virus. Her daughter died when she was four years old. Um, Very, very controversial. She didn't back down from this view. She said, no, 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 it was something else. She died a few years later, um, 50 odd years old. Uh, Robert Kennedy cites her, uh, I think five or six times in the book, never telling the reader that she died and her daughter died in the process of saying that this stuff is ultimately harmless or that, or that HIV is not what, what we think it is. Um, and that the, the whole argument is rather complicated. There's actually some stuff that's interesting. And this is to your point, Coleman, I, this is where, I mean, I'm sympathetic to this is the, the, the HIV quote unquote skeptics. There were some things they came across that were true, like the way that AZT was, was, uh, administered and how toxic, I mean, the toxicity of that drug was, was uh, pretty significant, right? The stuff about AIDS in Africa, um, Rion Milan's piece and in, in Rolling Stone about that and populations exploding when they should have been declining and was these, you know, ELISA tests and the Western blot tests, were they testing um, for HIV, but actually false positive testing for malaria? I don't know that, but it was a really interesting kind of um, exercise. And there's some really interesting people that actually took that stuff seriously. Um, but, you know, when you talk about it in the, in the context of, of his book, and you don't mention that this person who was advocating for this stuff and advocating for her daughter and herself, both her daughter and her died, um, very prematurely at four years old and at 50 some odd years old. I think that's relevant. Mm-hmm. And if you're leaving that out, you're either you're, you don't know what you're talking about. You're sloppy. And, and if you don't know you're, 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 you're sloppy, if you do know it and you're leaving it out, it's sort of sinister. And I think that disqualifies him from um, holding the office of presidency. Yeah. Look, though, I don't know. I don't know if it's sloppy or sinister. And this, this gets to my, like I, I, I never go in for these attributions of mind reading and, and motives to people, which is, mm-hmm. um, for instance, both in the case of Hitch and Clinton and, and in the case of um, Fauci and Bill Gates, right? Like RFK, he believes Fauci and Bill Gates are just like knowing criminals, you know, every time they've made a public health error, a mistake, um, he attributes, attributes it to the worst pot- possible motives. Yeah, I personally, I, I really do not care about any of these individual leaders, but I do feel very strongly that the incentive structure uh, of 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 big pharma and its connections to the public health agencies is is not an issue that should go in one ear and and out the other, um, or necessarily equivocated to all the other examples of 
of, uh, you know, conflicts of interest and, and so forth, because, you know, it, it, I feel that, um, the, the corruption is, is not necessarily at the fringe that this, the, you know, the bad incentives are not at the fringes. They're, they're at the core in some way. And that this very much influences policies that, that can, again, really push people to actually take certain things into their bodies. And it, it hits me in a different way than, than big corn. Um, for instance. Sure. But you know, I would just say this, be on that tip, have people on your podcast that talk about this. There's no shortage of them. If it was just RFK, I would have, I would be a little more understanding about this, but you know, I mean, there's a, a very good book, uh, about the Sackler family and that kind of money and how that money influenced a lot of people. And a lot of people died as a, re as a result, Patrick Radden Keefe's book, he's been a guest in this podcast, a brilliant guy. I mean, some stuff in that, that book um, that I disagree with too. And I think a lot of people go too far in the pharma stuff, but mm -hmm. you know, anti-pharma stuff is not, not fringe in America. That's very, very common stuff. I mean, you can easily place a, an article, well-sourced, well-reasoned, well-argued in the New Yorker uh, attacking pharma. And it doesn't mean as you, as you point out that there's not some, very dark connections between some of these people who are, you know, regulating the stuff and being paid for it and the companies that are desperate to have their stuff pushed through. I, my problem is, is that the RFK stuff is, as Camille said, I think he's a very, very bad example of this. He's, he's not, he's someone that makes the case much more difficult than makes it much easier. And the other thing is that he has a lot of other views and it, it's amazing to see people, um, on the right, especially, I'm not kind of you in that, I'm mm -hmm. just saying people, uh, conservatives, um, loving this guy because they've become so used to getting like a little dopamine hit from populism mm. is that if you look at the things that Robert F. Kennedy believes about, say, economics, um, actually, I don't know, maybe a lot of conservatives these days believe in kind of social Democrat style politics. I notice he, I mean, see, know, he seems to be backing off Chavez his, uh, yeah, he seems to be backing so, off that I mean, stuff strategically, though. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, for sure, for sure. But it's, it's incumbent upon the voter and journalists to say, you know, why are you not talking about this stuff right now? Because, you know, th the thing that you're going to be in charge of uh, as a president, it's not just, you know, um, you're shutting down the CDC. It's going to be economic policy is going to be a big deal. Mm -hmm. And do you want to make, um, you know, Washington, D.C. look like Caracas? Because you've praised the absolute scumbaggery of Hugo Chavez who destroyed the Venezuelan economy. I mean, that's not, I mean, something that people should maybe pay attention to, but people aren't asking about that because it's about the feeling. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. And I talked about this in the last episode too. I totally understand that. And people who created this feeling should be held accountable and they should take responsibility for it in some way is that, you know what? We bullshitted people for so long about this stuff. We told them they couldn't ask questions that asking questions was actually a, uh, an act of violence. You're killing grandma if you are skeptical. I was thinking about this today when, you know, before we, before we did this. And I'm sure people will go back and, you know, tear this idea to shreds. But we were very skeptical on this podcast, but in a, in a, I think a very reasonable way about a lot of this policy. I mean, I vacillated, went back and forth on Sweden. Is that good? Is it bad? You know, we, I know that I, I said very publicly that, you know, taking the vaccine is a good idea if it, because uh, they, because they, told me, and clearly we're not telling the truth about this because uh, there is not enough data to suggest this, that if you took the vaccine, you would not spread 
the virus. So therefore, rip the mask off and go outside. Well, that turned out not to be true, too. So, so here's the I thing. My only problem with the way you phrase that, and I completely agree with everything you just said, is when people say it turned out not to be true. Mm-hmm. That, that way of framing it, it assumes that it's just um, neutral referees that happen to be making mistakes as opposed to an incentive structure that wherever there is uncertainty, the mistake always goes in the direction of uh, what would benefit pharmaceutical companies. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's, that's technically accurate. And that's not conspiratorial. That's just show me the incentive. I'll show you the result. I think that public choice, but I think the incentive is, I think the incentive is actually a little different than that. I mean, in, in, in normal times, the, the principal knock on the regulators who are responsible for approving drugs is that they take entirely too long. And that I agree. I agree. So I'm not, I'm actually not talking about normal times. I'm I'm really specifically talking about, you know, vaccines, public health in particular, and uh, yeah. Yeah. And because vaccines are rather, I think they're a pretty small percentage of like the global um, pharmaceuticals industry, which is, you know, what, like a one and a half trillion dollar industry and global, the global vaccine market. I looked these numbers up at some point is like tens of billions of dollars. So it's, it's a lot, but relative to the overall pie, it's relatively small. Um, And it is certainly the case that they have certain indemnifications and that there are probably going to be approvals that run in a certain way. And during they, they can't the can't be pan- sued during the pandemic, they're very, they're very weakly incentivized to ensure that their products are safe in the case of vaccines. I, I agree. I think that's very true. weakly incentivized, but, but in general, like the rest of the pharmaceutical industry, like actually doesn't have a great deal of incentive to innovate <laughs> because it's really, really hard to get your drugs approved. It can take a decade or more, and the and the principal the principal victim there, um, and the principal the principal uh, consequence is that lots of people end up dying um, because the waiting, experimental drug that might have saved yeah, their I, life. I don't disagree. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't ever get released, and that's the real cost. And and you know I I'm I'm with you in general. I want greater transparency. I mean the the possibility of regulatory capture is always something that we ought to think about. Um, but I think in general that in normal times, um, the the bigger concern um, is is that the regulatory agencies are likely just sitting on their hands, not doing anything, um, as opposed to just being bossed around with respect to pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. in particular by the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a need for you know greater accountability and more transparency and you know better a better overall approach to regulation. I think there is. A couple of things on this is that, um, first of all, saying saying it turns out not to be true is um, specifically related to um, medical authorities. I mean, the mm. CDC and stuff. I mean, you're taking their said so We are the people who are creating uh, policy in the United States and creating the truth. And we create the truth about the vaccines. And that turns out not to be true. That's what I meant by that specifically. Mm-hmm. But to the... Um, other point, the number, the number of these people about that get are mad about the vaccine stuff are Trump supporters. A huge number of them uh, looking for a new kind of Donald Trump type figure, mm. a populist figure. 
Uh, Donald Trump is the one that was responsible for a lot of this stuff and Operation Warp Speed. And you know, he, as a matter of fact, is t- still taking credit for it and has been yeah, up until yeah. fairly recently. Which has they become a problem for him. Less about it. <laughs> and I don't think he was uh, somebody that was maybe in the pockets of Moderna or Pfizer. And you know, also if you look at the you know the consequences of well, producing yeah. a sh- uh, rush, rushing through a shitty vaccine mm-hmm. that um, harms people and doesn't work, uh, it's, it's the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was taken off the market. Mm-hmm. That was having adverse effects on people, and that was, as, that was as, as Vinay Prasad pointed out, both the Johnson Johnson and Johnson Johnson vaccine side effects, as well as the mm-hmm. eventual myocarditis side effects, neither of those were first discovered or reported in America because our our system for doing so is so poor. Uh, I, I want to say a few. I'll take his word for that. I, didn't know that. I don't know if that's the case. Um, so, yeah, you know, like so. So what I what I was getting at the whole turns out to be true thing is like. When the, when the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine emergency authorization, there was no reason to believe that it would decrease transmission or stop transmission. Pfizer never made that claim and specifically said, we have simply no data on that. Yeah. So, you know, so, so whenever the uncertainty, whenever there was uncertainty, and I'm not even sure if it's uncertainty in that case, because there's just no data. Why was the default to every, every decision that would push the vaccine on people? Well, the incentive there is different than what you say, because obviously the, the pharmaceutical company itself is saying that that's not true, rather than trying to pretend that it is to sell more vaccines. Mm-hmm. That is a political thing that people were saying. Um, you know, I mean, Rochelle Walensky, for instance, is, is somebody who is... I, I, the, the question is, do they believe a lot of this? And stuff? she said the I, same I thing. They do. I suspect you know, they I do too. And that's, that's mm-hmm. the reason that I don't go in for the conspiratorial thinking is because I think there's, there's no limit to what a person can earnestly convince themselves of given a, an incentive structure and surrounding culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, one, one of the big problems of this is the, the believe the science thing. And is the idea that, you know, science is a static thing and there's a yes and a no and a, and a right and a wrong. But it's also that, you know, we are the people in positions of authority and you guys are just knuckle draggers. And by the way, if you are in a position of authority and you disagree with us from the very beginning, we're going to do everything we can to uh, make your life miserable. And you can, the camera can swing over to uh, John Ioannidis at Stanford and um, Jay Bhattacharya at Stanford. And again, it doesn't matter if what they're saying is, it turns out to be right. So how is it, is it, how, how is it, why is it um, that, that the NIAID can have an actual single digit percentage stake in the revenue from the Moderna vaccine? That just seems to me a very basic conflict of interest. If you're talking about, you know, the, the head of this organization, this organization is on the patent, gets whatever, two cents on the dollar, whatever it is, mm-hmm. how, as, as just like a normal, rational person, why am I to take that, the person talking to me to assume that they are a neutral referee of the information? Well, you shouldn't. I mean, this, but this is always the case, right? I mean, the, the people telling you what a drug is going to do uh, to have, change your life on television and an ad is the drug company. Um, the and the, doctor who's and the only places those ads might, are, might be, are, you know, are allowed are American and, and, and like New Zealand. I, I do feel like yeah, we are, like, yeah. we are kind of like, um, we, we've become accustomed to how, how strange certain aspects of, of this are. So, I'm, Look, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I suppose I understand, I understand that, but, but part of it is a function of the way that we 
we are doing the investments. I mean, the, the thinking here is that they're, they're a party to investments in the research that makes these drugs possible. And one would presume that that's the reason why they're taking some stake. Correct. I'm constant. I'm confident that there are alternative ways that we could design the system, but I don't know that removing the kind of direct incentive for that institution to profit from the successful drugs so that they can reinvest in more drug research actually removes a great deal of the incentive to, you know, promote the drugs yeah. that they've invested in that seem to work. And and that that seems to be the dynamic there. I think we probably ought to look at COVID and all of the resulting dysfunction or the yeah, COVID and all the resulting dysfunction in a very as a very special case, an important case, an urgently important case, because we could find ourselves back there again before we know it um, mm-hmm. and try to figure out how do we how we design policy so that we can respond better in the midst of an emergency, a public health emergency, where there is a great deal of concern, not a hell of a lot of time to sort through what's true and false and a lot of pressure for policymakers to make rather dramatic sweeping determinations about what we'll do and what you need to take uh, if you want to continue to work, for example. Like, we should have those conversations, but I think that that's maybe separate and apart from the the broader dysfunctions with our healthcare system, or at least at least we probably ought to be having the two the two conversations like alongside one another. And you some, know, I, I would way. even go farther than than you in saying that there may be some ways in which this sort of legal corruption is actually like a net good for, for the country and for the world by spurring innovation in some way, right? If, if that's true. I would then I'm not even sure that I want the system to change, right? It might just be that I I would like a, a media and mainstream mm-hmm. journalism environment that is far more skeptical. Well, yeah, the science of, journalism of, of, is of the government. Yeah. That's I think that's ultimately the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, and because you said something yeah. Coleman about the um Moderna or Pfizer not actually making the claim this that this doesn't prevent transmission. Um you could make a very good argument that it was both political and kind of ideological and media based of people saying that to uh, push more people to get vaccines and to create a vaccine mandate. Uh, the mandate only makes sense if it doesn't, if it prevents Correct. transmission. You so what's, what's the politics that. or ideology there? Is it just that it became a partisan issue and it's like mm-hmm. self-generating? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I mean, when I showed up at, at my daughter's school and there was one of the parents from a different uh, dropping cut off from a different grade who had a baseball hat on that said, I like we believe in science or something. I was like, OK, we've gone into a very, very strange, strange place that like, you know, liberal Brooklyn, Brooklyn parents are saying we believe in a thing called science. Uh, but, you know, I mean, to, to Camille's point, too, is that I'm happy that Moderna uh, the people at Moderna and the people at Pfizer were motivated by money because, I mean, if you look at the vaccines, oh, I agree. By, I, I'm happy Russia, that the, China, no, no, I agree. I, and I'm, Cuba, I'm, Cuba had their own vaccine. I'm very I mean, happy that the, that did. the people at you know at, at Pfizer and Moderna are motivated by money because capitalism. I'm I'm very much pro capitalism. I'm I'm not happy that you know when the, the watchdog organization asked for all the royalty payments to NIH employees 
um, a, a couple years back, mm-hmm. the NIH only gave them like eight year old data mm-hmm. showing that like, I think I can't remember the, the exact number, but maybe 300 million or so, something like that. I, I can look it up. Um, was given to like over a thousand uh, employees and the names were redacted for some, the, you know, like this, uh, yeah, it was a $134 million, sorry, um, that pharma companies paid to NIH employees between 2010 and 2014. And, um, and, you know, is it, is it crazy to think that these, these systems are bound up in an incentive structure that fundamentally biases people uh, towards towards decisions, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the vaccine case, where they are weakly incentivized to to make it safe because they can't be sued. Look, I think that it's probably it, it's true across Washington D.C. and in, in almost every. I mean, whether it's defense industry, um, whether it's you know gun lobbies, whatever it might be. Um, I, you actually have. But frankly, I feel like all that all that stuff it, it doesn't affect me as as. Um, as as immediately as as well, but being that's pressured more to re- take something, but, right? Look, but that's why there's more recourse. If your people are getting paid to push through a drug that's killing people, that ends pretty quickly mm-hmm. because all these people start dying and people get outraged and lawsuits happen, etc. I know that the vaccine stuff's different, but still, I mean, the, you know, well, the vaccine stuff is, is that's not the case if you're if if someone's going there for Raytheon. The vaccine and, like, is those, really that goes on for yeah. years and years and years and years. I agree. But the vaccine stuff is mainly what I am what I am talking about, right? And Did and this get this Coleman, the, that the vaccines were, um, you know, you say if you think this was a corrupt process and that too many people were making money off of this, and um, it's easy to be to, to question this stuff and you know be reasonable questioning it. Would you agree though that they were amazingly effective? Um, for definitely for older people. Definitely yes, for older yeah. people. I mean, it's pretty miraculous that yeah. it happened that quickly. Right? I, I don't know that it was necessary for me to take them. Oh, sure. I don't think it was. I, yeah, I, I think that's right. I would almost I certainly it say that it wasn't. Yeah. Shouldn't have been yeah. mandated. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and that to me, that's not a small deal. It's like, I, I, I look at the, uh, anyway, like the Pfizer study, the final Pfizer study, the six month data, I, I, this, I need to actually have explained to me by a real expert because I could just be not understanding some nuance here, but, um, it was remarkably effective in terms of hospitalizations for COVID, which someone like me was like not at risk from to begin with. Yeah. Um, yeah. but the, the all cause mortality data was not good, right? It was 15 people in total died in the vaxxed group and 14 people died in total in the placebo group. And there was two deaths from COVID in, in the um, placebo group and one death from COVID in the vaxxed group. And there were four heart attack deaths in the vaxxed group and one heart attack death in the placebo group. And, but if it's preventing hospitalizations, it must be preventing um, adverse effects of COVID down the Pre- line. Prevent, preventing COVID hospi- hospitalizations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, a, it's, a, it's as with any, any medical intervention, it's always a cost-benefit analysis. It's like, are there, sure, sure. if the all-cause mortality rate from any medical intervention is in the wrong direction, it, it, I don't r- truly understand why such a thing would ne- necessarily be widely recommended. Especially if maybe, if, if what seems to be the case, whereas where 
stratified by age, the, the cost benefit really flipped. So it was very good for like older women, but for younger men, it may have caused the side effects may have been worse than the, Mm -hmm. uh, than the benefits. Right. And like, why, why was this stuff not really explained in, in detail? And why was that supplemental appendix not shown to the public on TV and like, explain it to me, like make it make sense to me because more people died who got vaxxed by one person and you're telling me, so hmm. I, I just need all this stuff to be explained to me. And the one AP article that seeks to explain it makes absolutely no sense. Well, yeah. But is it, yeah. is it not possible that there's not a conspiracy so vast and that- I don't think there's you know, a vast Much conspiracy. like the, the, I always point out the decision to use the atomic bomb. There's an argument amongst academics if there was even a decision. It was just so many people were involved in the process yeah. of the Manhattan Project that it just, you know, Truman didn't even know about the Manhattan Project when FDR died, that it was just in this kind of glide path towards happening and no one made that decision. That's exactly Is what it, I mean by structural incentive mm-hmm, structure mm-hmm. and that I don't really care about like people's <laughs> state of mind. Yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah, so white supremacy is what <laughs> white supremacy. caused um, the bomb to be dropped on Hiroshima and it also is responsible yeah. yes. for the uh, lockdowns. If, for Jim Crow, everything. Yeah. But no, I mean that not in the sense of that, that um, even within the government, I think it's, you know, people showing up on MSNBC, uh, your doctor, I mean, I, individual doctors mm-hmm. that I had that were like, you got to go, you have to get vaxxed, you're a diabetic, I'm a type one diabetic. And I was like, but isn't this bad for type two diabetics who tend to be overweight and tend to have all these other issues? And like, no, it's all diabetics. I, there was a study that suggested that was true. And then it turned out that that probably wasn't mm. true. I think that's because and I think people, people are always using limited people, information and then yes. erring on the side of what doctors do is, is what I found. And again, I don't mm-hmm. know if this is institutionalized erring on the side of um, an intervention, because if you don't, there's also that, that tort problem too. If they don't and, and you get sick or something like you should have told me mm-hmm. as a diabetic, I don't know what motivates them, but I saw that there was no sort of central authority, but there was a lot of people that had just, it was just this kind of swell and everyone uh, thinking the same thing. Like we have to end this, we have to end this and this is how we do it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like I said, I, I really am not interested in like, the, the mind reading, like what, what it is, but I do believe that incentives matter. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of times like people, I mean, people like, I think you and me, frankly, will just like dig into the primary source of something just for curiosity. But in sure. an, in an institutional culture, if, if all the incentives are aligned to push the thing, mm-hmm. then people just work harder to persuade themselves of the things that uh, you know, will be generally good for them and everyone they work with and know, and they work a little less hard to, um, to look at the other side and look at and be, and be a skeptic. Right. Um, so, and I think that's, that's (laughs) during the pandemic, it seems to me that that is one of the reasons why every like so-called mistake, every so-called, um, um, science changing. And I'm not, again, I'm not alleging conspiracy. I'm, I'm just alleging like the mistakes are made in the direction of where the incentives push, mm-hmm. you know, and, and nobody's like a mustache twirling villain and nobody's, but I, I believe that that is really, um, quite bad. And anyway, yeah. Well, I, I wonder if it's not, if it's not the same dynamic that played out with so many other things during the pandemic, like the, the cultural obsession with um, racial equity that was given rise to during the same period 
and how quickly like that sort of took over the zeitgeist, the reality that the intermediary between the academic institutions and the the scientific institutions that are responsible for creating knowledge and for um, kind of validating uh, things and establishing things as true in the peer reviewed journals. Like there were particular kinds of incentives at work and there always are. I mean, it's the reason why we've had um, even before the pandemic, we had conversations about the replication crisis um, in science broadly and particularly in the, in the like, harder sciences, but also in the social sciences, um, it seems like it's of a piece with the erroneous conclusions that were reached, the, the kind of groupthink that was all pushing people in a particular direction um, that made it kind of obvious like where the where people were going to land on particular issues. Um, with respect to what the science was saying, um, it's it's interesting that the same crowd that was very eager to embrace mandatory masking was initially completely convinced that masks didn't matter because the same authorities that kind of gave them that guidance and they were inclined to trust those authorities while people on the other side were inclined not to. Um, there's a real sense in which plenty of people simply aren't doing a lot of critical thinking. There isn't a great deal of kind of thoughtful, informed skepticism. There's a great deal of cynicism, but I don't think there's a lot of skepticism. And I don't think there are many people. It's it's interesting when I when I hear you talk and say, I need to have someone explain this to me. Most people don't really want it explained to them at all. <laughs> they just want, they want a conclusion distilled for them. Yeah. Tell me who sure. is bad. Mm-hmm. Tell me who is wrong. Tell me what works and tell me what doesn't work. And they don't demand rigorous reporting from journalists. They just want the quote unquote capital T truth as quickly as possible. And I think that perhaps more than anything else is the the fundamental disconnect because any other system that we replace the kind of pharmaceutical, the current setup of the pharmaceutical industry with, um, even if we take the financial incentives out of it, the fact is that the kind of verification process, like the, 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 wherever the citizenry, the customers, the, the, the patient population comes into contact with the pharmaceutical industry, whether it be completely for profit or even completely publicly owned, there's going to be that same opportunity for there to be a, a lack of real trustworthy information about what works and what doesn't. Um, if in fact, people aren't actually interested in the details at all, um, there can be proxies for trying to get at the truth, but I, I think it'll be really hard until we actually cultivate some of that discipline, skepticism and meaningful curiosity about what works and can what I, doesn't. Can I give you an example of like of, of a hypothetical that is not outlandish that might make sense of like, and I'm not saying this is the typical RFK fan, but that would make somebody not care about RFK's, all of his crazy, stupid shit, right? Sure. Imagine if you are so, like someone in my age range and when, when the booster came out and the CDC released all the data showing that it was effective for people over 50, 
and chose to withhold the data that showed it wasn't effective for people under 50, hmm. right? To the shock of scientists, and this is all in the New York Times, to the shock of scientists that had been begging for all the data, which then allowed people to mood affiliate and feel the booster was really, really important. And, you know, as a musician, I would have lost work if I didn't take the booster. That's the only reason I took it. Exactly. I would have lost work. I know professors that would have been fired or if not, if not fired, then certainly suspended if they did not take the booster. Why did the CDC withhold that information? Like, and, and how can I actually, why is it a rational position to trust what I'm being told? Mm -hmm. Imagine I, I did get myocarditis from, from the booster. Right. And we know that it was, if, if not we're recalled, not though, suggested right? in several European countries because I hope we're still imagining um, Coleman. You didn't, so did no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. I'm fine. Okay. But we know that people did. We know that there was a signal for that and that several European countries recommended Moderna over Pfizer for young men as a result. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, I can understand like the, the depth of betrayal and rage mm-hmm. at the whole corruption of it all mm-hmm. by, uh, you know, and, and this is when I say, I know I, you made a good argument b- before Michael, but like, this is why the analogy to big corn doesn't, it doesn't resonate with me. Not that that doesn't matter. Right. No, I mean, you, it can be anything. I'm just, the, the point that I'm making is not the severity of the importance of it. It's just that it is honeycombed through every regulatory agency. In, yes, in absolutely. DC. Mm-hmm, and, absolutely. And this is going to be no different. I think the one thing that is different in this because of the because of the pandemic and because of how it overtook the world and, you know, impacted literally everyone's life is that you see, you said as a musician, there would have been places you couldn't play yeah. if you hadn't gotten the booster. I mean, you think about this, this is not actually something that is coming from on high. This is definitely not something from the CDC. And I'll give you an example why. Go, go to a private school. Um, and, you know, it boosters No, but the CDC allowed it by not... The CDC allowed it, of course. But if you say... If choosing you say this, to withhold like the, data the, for no reason. Mm-hmm. The, but if you say this, like it's pretty obvious to everyone uh, involved, and, you know, parents were talking about this too, is that, you know, the kids didn't need the uh, initial vaccines in the first place. Right. I just, you know, particularly if it's not, if it's not preventing spread. When you and say it's obvious the, to people, it's not obvious to people that are watch, just watching the news and trusting what the CDC says. Cause if the CDC doesn't say it, it's if, not if obvious. If you're smart enough to li- be listening to the CDC and like trying to like adjudicate which, what we should do, you should, you probably know. No, I know that people. It's just visual. I mean, it's just visual. I know a good friend of mine that were dying are not children. I mean, it's just, this is all, this is not, but I don't think most people knew that for almost no one. There are plenty. I talk to people routinely, like regular people who were kind of sort of listening to the, to the death numbers like every single year. The government, so the government should be telling me things. This stuff, the point that I'm making is this stuff happened independent of the government. It became a badge of honor. It became an ideological thing. The problem is, is that it's not the CDC. This is not what people are paying attention to. Okay. Parents are not like smart people are not looking to the CDC for guidance on everything. Right. You know, there's like, it was been known. Everyone that I knew at a certain time understood that kids were not dying of COVID. Guess what? The kids weren't going back to school and there was not a big fight from parents in, in Brooklyn. Why? Because the CDC? No, because it became part of an ideology. It became part of a way of thinking about how to, you know, how one treats COVID. You were a serious person if you wore a mask. 
That was that was the the free Mumia T-shirt of of 2021. This had nothing to do with the amount of data we were getting. And the people that are more sinister than anybody else, and look, we agree on the sort of overall propositions here. The people that are more sinister than anyone else are people in the media. It is not the CDC. Rochelle Walensky comes out, blubbers. No one remembers that Rochelle Walensky was crying on TV and saying, I expect a total catastrophe in the next couple of weeks. Nothing happened. Did, was she crucified for it? No, because no one remembers that she said it. The point of the, the, was, was like turning on MSNBC, turning on uh, CNN, listening to the people that were, were running your kids' schools. They were the, the, the doom mongers. They are educators. They should have access to the inf- information. They should be making decisions based on data, but they're not. In the same way that when you, you know, talk about something like, you know, police shootings after the George Floyd thing, nobody, like it's, the data is out there that, you know, this is 10 people, 15 people, 20 people a year. And even within that subset, some of the officers are black. Some of them are kind of, maybe the guy was carrying a phone and it looked like a gun. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. I've heard you talk about Tony Timpa. This stuff is out there. People don't know because they don't want to know about it. The most educated people in America knew nothing about this, couldn't go to the Washington Post database and figure it out. No, they didn't want to know. They had a narrative and that was the most important thing. And when the narrative was set, that there was no going back from it. And the same thing was true with COVID. You couldn't take somebody from my daughter's school and give them CDC data and say, let the kids not eat lunch outside in December. It had no impact on them. It was not about, like, they could care less. You could bring them sheafs of data, nothing. They don't care. And that happened for two plus years. And they were, you know, I mean, all these schools, it was private schools and public schools. It wasn't just the teachers unions. It was, it was was a class of people that just did not want to deal with things that were obviously true. But I think that you guys both see this, like when you're talking about race issues, is that there's like, there's actual data here that no one, and Camille does this debate at the Comedy Cellar, and the woman's like, I have a study, one study, and she's like, I'm not going to deal with feeling. 90 minutes of feeling. <laughs> one fake study that was mentioned. I don't even know what the study was. It could be fake. It could be real. No one told me what it was. But you can't dislodge these people. It's very, very frustrating. And so, I mean, I'm absolutely 100% on your side about the COVID stuff. I mean, I agree with you on pretty much everything. I just don't think that the government was going to change matters very much. Hmm. Um, I mean, the, the, the Trump administration, you know. Too. I mean, I, I, th- I, think, I think we have somewhat just different feelings about it. Cause I, I, I don't disagree with you that it became, it's an ideological, um, an ideological, it took on an ideological ment- momentum of its own mm-hmm. outside of government messaging. I, I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, at the same time, I feel, I do remember that I know people that were, very closely paying attention to what the public health officials were telling them on the nightly news every night. And that's true that in the was, beginning, particularly that in, was, in New York. Yeah. So, and, um, and even developed, even developed on an almost like parasocial relationship with some of the, you know, Fauci <laughs> and with others and so forth. Yeah. And when the CDC had the data on the boosters, when they had the full data, if there had been it just a, honest, neutral referee communication of these people need it. These people don't. I think that would have had quite an impact. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that they kind of overrode the data? Do you think that that was because people's pockets were being lined or because it was just never consciously to say, 
I think it could be a mix of like, it could be a mix of this ideological partisan thing that yeah. happened. Mm -hmm. And it could also yeah. be a mix of, of the fundamental incentive structure of, of, um, you know, having a whole agency where half of you, after you leave, you're going to go work for the pharma companies and you all kind of know each other and you're in a particular culture and the incentive structure impacts the outcomes in ways that are not conscious or deliberate. But yeah, that would be the financial. I mean, the financial incentive. I mean, the other end of that too is the people on the other side. Um, you know, I did a couple of stories when I was out with people in uh, MAGA world and these are people that are getting data that doesn't exist. I mean, it's not even Fauci and stuff. I mean, I had a guy tell me that he didn't want to be too close. It's a true story. He didn't want to be too close to me because of um, a vaccine shedding. And he didn't, if you haven't seen this, you can look it up. This is, there's actually a real thing about this, but it has nothing to do with like these MRNA vaccines. But these people actually get crazy data from places that doesn't, don't have any relationship. I remember these guys that were a couple of doctors in Southern California who released this video, the pandemic stuff. I mean, people are finding their own ways on the other side too. I don't want to just criticize them. I mean, these are the people that I'm around is the people that wear the t-shirts that say, I believe the science and you don't sucker. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of kind of motivated reasoning that went on at a certain point, but I think you're absolutely right. And it's, and you know, I'm um, remiss of not remembering that at the beginning of this pandemic, um, in New York City, everybody was sitting down to watch Andrew Cuomo give his um, scolding speeches on TV every night. And that was actually a thing. Nobody had any idea. And I don't know what time it was where people settled into having an idea about what they thought about COVID. But it, ha it seemed to happen pretty fast. But then again, that entire time period for me is a bit of a blur. About as, as far as corruption is concerned, do we want to talk about the Hunter Biden thing? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I also think there's probably some some relationship between the the Hunter Biden stuff in general, the, the sort of Trump papers situation, um, the, the general, um, even, even the COVID conversation that we're having. Um, so it's, it's worth pivoting to that for a little bit. Uh, I suppose the news uh, for people who haven't been paying attention is that finally this week, uh, the justice department and, uh, Hunter Biden, reached an agreement. He is going to plead guilty to uh, two lesser tax avoidance charges um, and is likely to be able to avoid jail uh, if nothing else comes up. Sounds like he's also going to enter a diversion program uh, related to some specific charges uh, about a gun that he acquired which he lied on his application, uh, suggesting that he was totally clean and not at all, not a drug, not at all using drugs a whole bunch. I mean, that's kind of what you would so do. He could legally <laughs> purchase like a firearm. Signing up, you're gonna be like, actually, yeah. I'm super fucked up trying to get this gun. Right um, so, I mean, I understand. Yeah, that. yeah. And the initial news, <laughs> the initial news and the initial controversy was, oh my God, look at Hunter Biden getting this, you know, preferential treatment. Um, I mean, Wesley Snipes, he did you know, bad things on his taxes and he went to jail and Hunter Biden, you know, president's son, he's getting off. He ain't going to jail. <laughs> Wesley Snipes publicly declared that he didn't have to be. Yeah, this, the situations, <laughs> the situations are different in some material ways. Um, and Hunter did pay his taxes late, although it, it, as if I understand it correctly, Hunter paid his taxes uh, by borrowing like two million dollars from a yeah. friend. Um, who is, you know, a supporter of his dad. So, you know, again, there's nothing illegal about that, but it certainly is a bit unseemly. 
But what's what's more is that this same week, and I think it was was it yesterday that we heard about we saw some reporting and there was a hearing about um or at least the report the transcripts were released from some hearings where a pair of whistleblowers who were involved in the Hunter Biden investigation uh, at the IRS uh, came forward and said that they they experienced some things during the course of their investigation that made them very concerned uh, that they felt as though they were obstructed from being able to pursue charges against Hunter at a number of different stages that there were aspects of the investigation where they wanted to go and do things like visit one of the uh, Biden vacation residences because they thought that there might be some evidence there. And there were people inside the Justice Department who essentially were running interference for the Biden administration. This is per the whistleblowers. Um, and that they were they were doing things, uh, went so far as to inform Hunter Biden reportedly uh, that there was going to be potentially um, uh, a warrant issued to go and investigate a particular place, essentially allowing them time to move potentially incriminating mm-hmm. information. And I think the most scintillating thing to come out of this is uh, a transcript of a WhatsApp conversation that was read aloud in Congress, um, where Hunter Biden essentially informs uh, someone in the the Chinese uh, a Chinese uh, finance industry, I believe. Um, that there was an expectation that some payments would be made. And he says in the WhatsApp, I'm sitting next to my dad. We are concerned yeah, that you okay. haven't paid the money quickly yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, you need to pay us this money. And if we don't get the money, you know, everyone he knows and everyone I know <laughs> is going to be coming after you. Totally so pay us the money. And uh, shocking shockingly he was in fact paid the money and i mean the stories that have been written at this point i mean we're not talking about just like the daily caller like the new york times is reporting on this at this point this is a a legitimate scandal um and you know to the extent the president ken Ken vogel from the new york times can i read his you should yeah yeah early because this is yeah unbelievable to the extent the president has been asked about this the president i saw him he was asked about it when he was at his ai conference in san francisco earlier this week people are yelling questions at the end of the conference and someone says something about his son and the only response he has in the meeting is i'm very proud of my son which is like Yeah. yeah what he loves horrors. Um, so yeah, it's a crazy, <laughs> crazy situation. <laughs> this is the Ken Vogel tweet. Um, and Ken Vogel used to be a Politico, as the New York Times is not, as Camille points out, not a daily caller type journalist. Um, and, you know, we've uh, kind of avoided the Hunter Biden stuff uh, on this podcast, except for the the laptop story and shutting down the New York Post and the uh, insanity of that. Um, because when stuff like this comes out, it's like, all right, now it's time to pay attention. Um, because it was all inference. It was kind of like whitewater in the early days of the Clinton stuff. It's like, well, okay, where's this going? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff is confusing, but this is Ken Vogel's tweet within 10 days of Hunter Biden's WhatsApp message to the Chinese official associated with CEFC. That's the company, a CEFC subsidiary sent two payments totaling $5.1 million to accounts, <laughs> accounts linked to Hunter, so according to records cited in the Senate GMP investigation. If that is true, I mean, it, CES, I am actually China Energy. Support. Yeah, so it's an energy company. Is that uh, what it is? Yeah, yeah. The, the, if that is true, 
I mean, that is uh, uh, a pretty smoking gun right there, isn't it? I mean, for what? I mean, this is the thing about the Ukraine stuff with, with him. Mm-hmm. He was on retainer for, what, $200,000 a month, having literally no background in energy, no background in Ukraine, knew nothing, and he's being paid. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, because of his relationship with his father, because he his his father's son, period, full stop. And then you have this. Why is the Chinese, uh, something presumably associated with the Chinese Communist Party, sending $5 million uh, 10 days after a WhatsApp message in which he threatens him and says, my dad is going to get mad <laughs> if you don't pay us. For what? What do you do? What do I mean, is he an expert in Chinese energy? I mean, he's, he doesn't appear to be an, an expert in anything other than sort of bad painting and screwing his you know, dead brother's wife, which is, the, I mean, I think one of the craziest things in the world. And I don't know why more people don't focus in on that. It's completely disgusting and crazy. It's, it's interesting that, um, well, a couple of different things. There's a, the res- one response that I've seen from this from the left is, well, I mean, look, Hunter Biden wasn't elected to anything. Um, and there are some questions about whether or not there's any illega- illegality here. Um, you know, at the time that a lot of this was happening, Joe Biden wasn't in office. Um, and mm-hmm. there is at least for, for the whole portion of it, um, the, his son was using a lot of drugs, um, and was, was exercising very poor judgment or great judgment. If you're the kind of person who really likes going to strip clubs, if you like drugs, you know, doing and, amazing and doing drugs. Job. Yeah. He's great at that. And great <laughs> at writing, prostitutes writing drugs, it off. Um, he's your hero, <laughs> but it's the sort of thing that if, if this were one of the, the Trump children who was doing this kind of stuff and got caught for it, um, one has to imagine that this would not just be like a massive scandal that everyone would be talking about. It'd, it'd be in some respects, kind of the only thing anyone could talk about. I mean, the investigation that led to the discovery of these WhatsApp messages began with uh, something very scintillating, like an investigation into some sort of international adult website. <laughs> like, And then you find your way to Hunter Biden messages. Like this is, this is juicy stuff. And for there to be allegations or even an admission by Hunter Biden in the messages that my dad is sitting next to me and we have an expectation that we'll get paid. <laughs> has no idea like if there is, if there are questions, <laughs> it's entirely possible. He just made that up and, and his dad didn't really inch wasn't interested, but at a, at a minimum, this is an admission from him that his dad is also involved. Like one has to actually investigate I mean, to find out whether well, or not there's yeah, criminality yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. You have to investigate. And it seems Definitely like they decided we're just not going have to. to investigate. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, obviously we know from common sense and, and the gun charge that he has no problem lying if he wants to get, get a yes. bag, right? of course. So, uh, I'd be curious if the guy texting him back, send me a picture, tell me you're really with your dad. Yeah. <laughs> right. Share your he sent the wire. Well, yeah. he was at the house. There, there's been subsequent reporting as well that suggested he oh. was at the house at the time um, that some of this was happening. So, you know, but he was probably at the house a lot. I don't know. Did he have a house at that point? I well, Daddy did. So I mean, he's, yeah, because I mean, he seemed to be a lot of those videos and seemed to be in hotels. I do want to point out that the first response to the Ken Vogel tweet is now try two billion dollars to Jared Kushner. Yes, and seven hundred million to Jared and Ivanka while in office. Well, Ken Vogel responds. My colleagues at the New York Times literally broke that story, mm-hmm. which is how you know about did it. Tons <laughs> of tons of reporting on that story. Actually, I mean, no one has has answered the most basic question here. And this is a question worth asking. 
why are you guys so rich? Where is this money coming from? It's not from Hunter's paintings. Mm -hmm. Good God. You should be losing money on those. How, I mean, how I, rich is Joe Biden? I don't, I don't know who's not worth. I mean, can look that up. I, I think the argument is that, you know, speeches, uh, books, uh, you know, book mm -hmm. advances, things like that. It doesn't really add up. I mean, the one that was obviously harder to figure out was the Bill Clinton stuff because Bill Clinton literally was getting like $500,000 a speech from mm -hmm. Bank of America. Um, you know, whereas like, you know, the Peter Schweitzers of the world saying, well, you know, investigate the Clinton foundation possibly, but you know, he did have a better cover. But Joe Biden's brother has long been in the business of essentially, if not yeah. selling access to Joe Biden, yes. like trafficking yeah. in the, the notion that he has some sort of particular favor yeah. with his brother. And both of his sons seem to be profiting from that in some way, shape or form, essentially doing this kind of, you know, international consulting stuff and collecting rather exceptional amounts of money uh, from foreign governments and, and, and foreign businesses um, who would have an interest in making the, you know, a, a powerful senator, um, a vice president, a potential future president of the United States very happy. And this is the kind of the kind of open corruption that has just like been tolerated in Washington for a very long time, which this is why it seems like very, very similar to me to the concerns that you Coleman were articulating with respect to how the pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory industry works. Like this, this is happening. Some of this is happening and there's a real question as to whether or not some of it is criminal at a minimum. It's unseemly. It seems to me that it's entirely possible that there are there are also kind of criminal things taking place here. It's certainly um, a crime to to do some of the things that that Hunter was doing. But if he's out of office, but, is it yeah. criminal? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, if yeah. Joe Biden's out of office, and you know they, uh, you know, this Chinese company is just saying, "Look, it's pretty good. We'll get, we'll give him money. We'll probably get closer to him." And they ultimately don't get close to Biden. Um, you know, foolish for that company, but I, it might not be illegal, right? I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what the what the statute would be that that would suggest that that was legal. Because it's not really influence peddling if you're outside of government. Yeah, right. But also, just kind of hard. It, I mean, I don't. It know. doesn't seem like the same thing as as the Trump situation at all, though. I mean, I think the Trump situation with the particularly it, again, we have to specify which indictment. The most recent indictment, <laughs> um, because there are so the many. The real one. Um, the most recent indictment, like you were running afoul of the law and you were talking yeah. openly to your legal representatives and other people who you didn't have any reason to think that this wasn't fine. You were being recorded and you knew it. And you said, I'm, I, it's illegal for me to show you this. I shouldn't show you this. Maybe step back a tad when you're looking at it. Isn't that wild? <laughs> Isn't this crazy? This illegal thing you're not supposed to see. Like, that that's a problem for you. We don't want to give the papers back. We're just not going to give them back. How about you take the box back to your hotel and just get rid of the suspect papers? You know, at, at the same time you're doing that, other people are seeing it. And Joe Biden and Mike Pence are talking to investigators saying, yeah, um, I maybe have some papers. You should probably come check this out. You might get in trouble for this kind of behavior. It's entirely possible. And it is totally your fault, especially when you know that you've had a target on yeah. your back for most of your um, time in office and even before that. I mean, the Russian investigation, there's a great deal there um, that I was always suspicious of, that I always thought was kind of preposterous. 
But the stuff that wasn't so preposterous was that there was a great deal about your conduct during that investigation and subsequently, obviously, um, that was just reckless and careless and is the real reason why you kind of open yourself up to to this kind of liability. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that should be looked at with respect to the intelligence community and the biases there and the lack of transparency and questions about whether or not they're being um, kind of politically biased or motivated in their their prosecution. Um, but my assumption is that uh, I don't think there's any anti-Republican bias on the part of the security state, but I do think there was an anti-Trump bias specifically because sure. he's so odious. Sure. Um, and as uh, as our friend Noam Dorman likes to say, he's, he says, in all his years being a boss, the unliked employees never get a fair shake. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and Trump is so sure, yeah. deeply unlikable. Yeah. He's such yeah. a bully. He is so he so deeply doesn't deserve fair treatment <laughs> as as a matter of his character that I think people like y- you would almost have to be a saint to treat him fair. You would have to have some right. real deep like a deep legal ethics to not want to get him a little bit, you know. <laughs> I think that's what part of what yeah, we see. He's, he's, he's a deeply unlikable person. And, you know, look, I think that this stuff is really gaining steam. I mean, you see that last opinion poll where he's down six points, you know. Um, what do you think that's about? Weirdly, DeSantis is pretty, sta- pretty static. But My only theory for why he's, why he's down six points is if, um, you know, his basically admission of guilt to certain of the crimes on TV, which is just like so egregiously <laughs> stupid is it that his, his, his shot maybe it's yeah. maybe it's like his fans will ride by him no matter what he does to others but if he's actually not even seemingly trying to stay out of jail they're like dude no they're um maybe maybe they feel he's betraying them yeah i i mean it, it's amazing that the timing of i could shoot somebody on fifth avenue was i believe before he was president mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, this has been the case for so long, but when you are, I mean, Trump has to have a version of what we all say when like, I don't know if this is real or do I just spend too much time on Twitter? Mm -hmm. Like, does the world actually (laughs) care about this? Right. Trump is like at Trump rallies and he's surrounded by yes men. He believes that like he is invincible and he believes that everyone loves him and it doesn't make a shit's bit of difference in the more heat he attracts the more popular he is because that is true in a very limited sample and you know when you don't believe in polling and you don't but like particularly after 2016 these people who believe that oh well you know the 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 polling was was wrong and i you know you can't trust this stuff i think he's actually internalized that in a way that that he believes he's actually um you know cannot possibly uh lose the support of the republican base which i think he's going to find out is not true Um, and I think increasingly it's, it's whether it's DeSantis or somebody else, but, but this stuff is, I mean, I saw this CNN thing, uh, tonight, this, um, uh, the Jack Smith thing that he was compelling at least two Republican fake electors to testify in a federal, to a federal grand jury by giving them limited immunity. Um, and then there's some sort of January 6th immunity. I mean, they're, they're stepping up this case. And that one hmm. is going to be the one I think is going to be the most damaging because this one is like, oh, the, the papers, ugh. you know, it's like Hunter and the gun thing. Yeah, he lied about the drugs and, yeah. you know, who cares? It's like th- there was a lot of the who cares stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Eli Lake wrote a piece about that for, for uh, Free Press, which I thought was pretty interesting. He got, a, he got a lot of shit for it. 
but you know, kind of made that argument, um, and also attacking the use of the Espionage Act. But yeah, I think that this next stuff is going to be going to be a little more serious. I also wanted to talk about the Wagner situation. And one hand, I don't know if you're paying close attention to what's happening because you're yeah, engaged yeah. in a conversation here. Um, but it's kind of a big deal yes. that there appears to be a, a, a coup um, happening in in yeah. Russia like right now. Um, and there is a great deal that we don't know. And it's only in the last hour and a half or two hours that we've actually been able to kind of confirm with a degree of confidence that this is a real thing that is actually happening. It's very much real. Um, so yeah, can yeah. you get, reported by Russian media surprising? Yeah. Can you give a little bit of context for what the hell is going on? Um, given, uh, given yeah. where we I are. Mean, it's a, I won't go back too far because, um, Prigozhin, um, and the Wagner group, uh, which, by the way, Matt Welch said, you know, I don't think of Russians when I, and I texted, I don't think of Russians when I hear Wagner. It's like, well, yes, the denazification uh, committee was actually named uh, for uh, Richard Wagner, the anti-Semitic uh, composer, because the Wagner group was started by a neo-Nazi. But uh, Prigozhin, who was at one time selling hot dogs in the street of St. Petersburg, mm. and uh, then became known as like uh, uh uh, Putin's chef because he he owned a restaurant and you know catering businesses and the rest of it. It's a very very curious, very Russian way of becoming uh, a notable figure. I mean, it's like a Rasputin type way. He was not somebody that came up through the ranks in the way that Putin did. Um, but you know, he's been he has uh, been the tip of the spear on on like you know with Russians fighting in Central African Republic, uh, you know, in Africa, in Syria. Those are all Wagner. Uh, uh, troop. I mean, America's fired on on uh, Wagner troops in Syria, uh, but it's kind of crazy that we don't even really think about that. Uh, and they have been, you know, taking a, 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 a brunt of a lot of this stuff. And he's been very critic, uh, very critical, as, as have the the sort of lead, leaders of the the Donetsk uh, separatists, who've been very critical of what's of of the decisions that the Kremlin's made um, in, in the context of Ukraine, now, the Ukraine conflict. in the context of the Ukraine war. Yeah. Uh, but today there's today when it, it went a totally unexpected uh, direction, you could expect one thing. You could expect the fact that, oh, you know, he's in conflict for some reason. Putin leaves him alone. There hasn't been I mean, because they are doing a lot of the uh, fighting. They emptied a lot of prisons um, to, you know, restaff the ranks of Wagner. Mm -hmm. Like you can get your freedom from these like horrible labor uh, camps in, in Russia. If you fight, I mean, what's, what's the worst thing you go stay there, you could die in Ukraine. So a lot of people did that. And, and a lot of them have been killed in a, and, and that's one of the problems is they're, they're being sort of thrown into this meat grinder. And so Prigozhin has been very critical of the Kremlin, but very critical of Putin. Um, Gherkin, the other guy in, in Donetsk has been very critical too. So these guys are like independent actors in a way. The weird thing today is this, is that, uh, Prigozhin says that the Russian troops from behind them, the line behind them, fired upon them and tried to eliminate this Wagner encampment. We don't know if that's true. There's a video of this, but it doesn't show anything. It, does, it shows a little fires here and there. It doesn't show any dead bodies. There's been some skepticism from places like Novoya Gazeta and Medusa, people who are um, very much in the opposition and opposed to Putin. Don't know if that, what happened there. But what they have done in response to that is declared war on um, um, the, the Russian state, basically, um, which is remarkable. 
and turned around and are marching in towards Russia, essentially announcing a coup and saying that this is the amazing thing. This I think is the kind of underreported thing. The most important thing is Prigozhin saying that the reason for the war in Ukraine, which has been repeated ad infinitum every evening on, you know, TV one in, in, in Russia and, and, you know, comes the old sky via Pravda and in Izvesti and all these newspapers all the time is that this is the denazification campaign. He said, this is not a denazification campaign. This is not what this is about. And poo-pooed the entire reason the Casas belly totally threat. It's amazing. I mean, it's just like they've been fed this uh, constantly. And he says, that's not exactly why this is happening. This is about um, people in the army trying to get, you know, sort of grand marshal status and, and elevate themselves. Um, but they've turned around and they say, if you are a young conscript, we will not fight you. We don't fight untrained soldiers. We don't fight children. Um, but if you're uh, in the Russian army and your you know, life is in the Russian army and you fight us, we will kill you. I'm not talking about killing Ukrainians right now. They're talking about killing Russians. Mm. And this is really astonishing. But look, I mean, this is through Russian history. This is how things change, right? I mean, there was a, there was a, a coup, a revolution in 1905. And that was the first bunch of, of changes that the czar made. And then there was a coup in 1917. The czar made more changes and then resigned the provisional government. Then there was a second coup in 1917. Then there was a coup in 1991 to uh, try to overthrow Gorbachev. Then there was a coup in 1993 to try to overthrow Yeltsin. There's a lot of this stuff in recent Russian history. I don't know where this will go. It's in the middle of an active war. And they're literally marching on Rostov right now. Um, and there's some photos from Rostov tonight that there's, there's like, um, APCs on the street and, and armed soldiers in the street. Uh, who knows what, how this is going to go. I mean, there's been border clashes with, you know, Russian, um, um, troops that are not loyal to Putin, you know, going across the border. I mean, some of them are actually like legitimately Nazis, by the way, going across the border and fighting in, in, uh, in uh, Russian villages uh, right over the border from Ukraine. So it's a complete mess of a situation. And good Lord, what an opportunity for Ukraine right now. If you have you, Wagner's really going to turn around and go and fight in Russia. Okay. All right. This is our, our counteroffensive time has been, has been kind of a lot slower than people expected. And I mean, what an opening, but this is huge news. And it's the interesting thing is that Russian media is actually reporting it. They're not, they're not saying it's not happening um, because hmm. they control all of television. They control every newspaper, they control every magazine, they control every radio station. They do not control telegram. And that is a huge uh, source of information in particularly Wagner's own telegram. So they, they have to con confront this stuff and um, they're doing it right now quite publicly. Um, Putin hasn't said anything himself, but but uh, some people in the army have given, given some testimony and been on TV about it. So it's a really, really stunning development. We'll see how it goes. Hopefully it'll cause chaos in Russia and hopefully they start killing each other and not, uh, and not uh, Ukrainian civilians. So, or, or Russian uh, civilians. Uh, or Russian civilians. I mean, that hasn't been really an issue so far, but yeah. it's, it looks like it might be. I, I don't want that to happen either. No. Well, yeah, we'll have to see how the, how the situation plays out. I mean, it's, it's very, very early. Could be that this is over tomorrow. Um, could also be that this is the beginning of something profoundly consequential for the Putin regime. 
Um, and it is it is interesting that so much of the conversation about Ukraine recently has been about the the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which they had hoped would go particularly well and would perhaps turn the tide there and bring about um, some some severe defeats for the Russians. And for the most part, it, it seemed to be kind of not accomplishing a great deal was the meat grinder was going on. And I suppose that is a kind of progress, but yeah, we don't know, but it didn't didn't seem like, but at the moment to the extent, this is the outcome that they've held out long enough for something like this to happen. I mean, that could be profoundly consequential later on um, as we go, go down the line and could actually, I don't know. I mean, one hopes that this is the beginning of some sort of de-escalation that takes us away from the the kind of gravest concerns that have existed about their, this becoming some sort of wider (laughs) conflict um, and going nuclear um, in some way. That's the thing is that there's constant talk of nuclear war. This is, I think, you know, this is different than that (laughs) worth discussing, but it's an absurdity the the way it's been. Yeah. Talked about constantly. It's like, you, I mean, it's essentially allowing people that have nuclear weapons to do whatever they want. Because anything you do in response to that, that is saying, hey, don't do that, is like, you're risking nuclear war. No, maybe they're risking nuclear war by yeah. invading a sovereign country. But the risk is not maybe about nuclear war. Maybe it's internal. Because dictatorships like the Putin regime, and it is a dictatorship, full stop. There are not free elections. There's not a free press. There's not a free judiciary. It is a dictatorship. Those don't end in any way other than bloodshed. And it's usually the military that does it. And, and you know, this is throughout, throughout 20th century history, um, 19th century history too, but recently that is how these things end. Um, I don't know. By the way, Prigozhin, if, if something like that took over, I, the, 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 it would not be great for Russia. He is totally fine with fighting the war in Ukraine. Uh, he just thinks that uh, Putin's lying about why they're fighting in the war in the Ukraine it has nothing to do with Nazis, which the only people who believe that are people in t- Twitter and in English language. Twitter is what, what, uh, what, uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, Coleman, when does your mm. book drop? February. In February. Yep. Okay. Takes Good. A long the title again. The end of race politics arguments for a colorblind America. All right. It's almost like Dinesh D'Souza's book. Do you remember his? Uh, I raised that objection. Book? I said, I said, it's too much like Dinesh D'Souza's book. And they were like, nobody reads. Nobody knows about that. <laughs> I, like, I just proved them wrong, but I am. But you are the, also. you are precisely the non-representative <laughs> audience that would still remember that horrible book. Look, I urge people to go back and look at that book because it's really interesting. Yeah. It is an interesting book because that's before he decided to do, which is essentially what he admitted to me when I interviewed him. That to do a performance because mm-hmm. there was more money to be made and more, um, you know, eyeballs by making ludicrous claims because that book is an attempt at being scholarly. Mm-hmm. Like it literally has, I think like Adolf Reed has a blurb on it or something. It was reviewed mm-hmm. in the New York Review of Books. It was mm-hmm. treated as a serious book. And it actually has a thing on a section on race science too, mm-hmm. that says it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. It's bogus and attacks, attacks, um, uh, the guy who runs American Renaissance, who I think tried to sue him. Jared Taylor? No? Jared Taylor, yeah. Yeah, and he went to some conference and then like kind of lit them up in the book. And it's just a very, very strange thing. It's a very different person hmm. to the one that uh, decided to make his to make his money being a um, just a complete nut, which is what he's become. So. Good God, 756 pages. It's like, it's literally an amazingly interesting huh. time capsule. doesn't matter if you agree with it. It's very, very interesting. And mm-hmm. 
if, if I took the name and any identifying feature off the book and gave it to you, you would be like, Oh, this is, this is an interesting perspective. It, mm-hmm. it could be like Stephen or Abigail Thernstrom. It could be mm-hmm. something like that. Right. You know, another, that another book that, that um, is pretty interesting, American black and white. Yeah. That uh, Very good book. Stephen and Abigail mm-hmm. Thernstrom book, but we don't have, it's a lot, it's old and out of date. And now we have, uh, Coleman Hughes, who's yeah. going to update it. Yeah, pretend. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, and I'm going to have the exact same trajectory as him. <laughs> you should put his picture. You should put his picture on the flat. Oh, it's already on my wall. Flat. It's already on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have that. It's a paint. It's really it's a painting. Yeah. Where did you get that painting of him? Um, <laughs> All right. All right. Dope. Um, well, I look forward. I still look Dope. forward to reading it because I, 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 I. I yeah, I'm excited about this thing that will come in February and it's done. It's turned in like it's, it's okay. Done, done. It's good. Mm-hmm. Um, not like me who I, I don't think I mentioned it on the, the podcast, but I did. I like sold a book proposal and I'm going to be yeah, writing a you. book. Uh, in fact, I'm, yeah, I'm in the process awesome. yeah. of writing on, um, individualism. It's weird that it's about the Holocaust, but I mean, it didn't happen and people need to know it. I have to yeah. finally I tell the truth about yeah. this. Yeah. I thought it was weird that the subtitle were black perspectives on the so-called cost. I thought that was unfortunate. <laughs> Amazing well, that they said that was okay. someone, someone has to stand up for the real Jews. Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. If, yeah. If not yay. Yeah. They then did who? kill the Jews, the real Jews. <laughs> um, I, I am, I am joking. Yeah. Uh, the book is not about, that um it is it is about individualism and and such and there will be there will be celebration and hosannas and joy when it is finally published like two years from now because that's how this kind of thing works so i won't say anything else about it except it is a real thing it is legitimately happening um it's happening you got to write it. Yeah. What's real? I mean, there's a contract and I've been sent monies. So oh, you have. in that way, it's real. Oh. <laughs> so I have obligations. Bye. Bye. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack.